Sometimes seeing things from a different perspective can make a big difference. Consider the parent whose child comes home from school with a bad attitude and is rude and is mean to a sibling. That parent might be, might be frustrated with that child, might be angry with that child. But perhaps later on, if the parent discovers that the child had experienced something terrible at school that day, the parent's perspective changes. Rather than approaching the child with anger or frustration, the parent might come and try to address the situation with compassion. Sometimes we need to see the big picture. And as important as our perspective is on individual events, how much more important is our perspective on the world, life, humanity, history, and God? What I'm referring to is a world view. Dr. James Anderson writes, a worldview is an overall view of the world. It's not a physical view of the world, but rather a philosophical view, an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. A person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe he inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all the big questions of human existence. Fundamental questions about who and what we are, where we came from, why we're here, where we're headed, the meaning and purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife, and what counts as a good life here and now. Worldviews shape and inform our experiences of the world around us. Like spectacles and colored lenses, they affect what we see and how we see it. Depending on the color of the lenses, some things may be seen more easily, or conversely, they may be de-emphasized or distorted. Indeed, some things may not be seen at all. Worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe and what we're willing to believe, how we interpret our experiences, how we behave in response to those experiences, and how we relate to others. Our thoughts and our actions are conditioned by our worldviews. I think that quote is helpful for several reasons, as it impresses on us the significance of a worldview and the reality that Everyone has a worldview. Some people have given a lot of thought to their worldview, while others have given it little thought. I wonder how much you have thought about your worldview. How do you see things? How do you understand things? What do you really believe? And how is it shaping the way you live. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Proverbs, and we are considering some of the most significant themes or subjects addressed in the book of Proverbs. And our subject this morning is eternity. One of the goals with our Proverbs sermon series, and really with every sermon preached, is to have our understanding of God, the world, ourselves, how we are to live, shaped by the Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word. In other words, we want a biblical worldview. 
when we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus' understanding of God, the world, himself, his mission, his opponents, and humanity were entirely shaped by Scripture. In his book, Taking God at His Word, Kevin DeYoung had this to say about Jesus. Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with the language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He never for a moment accepted the legitimacy of anyone, anywhere, violating, ignoring, refining, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, all of it. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says, and what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. It is impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, committed his brain to studying the scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior, believed his Bible was the word of God down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest specks, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his holy Bible could ever be broken. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you too should seek to have your worldview and your understanding of everything shaped by God's word. What you believe about eternity is a significant part of your worldview. My hope, prayer, and aim this morning is that our perspective on eternity and our lives will be shaped by Proverbs and the rest of God's word. In doing so, I hope this sermon does not feel like an eternity. <laughs> when studying Proverbs, the first thing to see regarding eternity is that God and his wisdom are eternal. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, wisdom is personified as a woman and Lady Wisdom describes herself in this way. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. 
When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. The Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work before the beginning of the earth. When Proverbs speaks of the Lord creating the earth and all that is in it, we are reminded that he is eternal. He is the creator of everyone and everything, and he alone was not created. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, the psalmist declares, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in Revelation 1.8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Moreover, the Lord has possessed wisdom for all of eternity. God is eternal. His wisdom is eternal. And his wisdom, which he has possessed for all of eternity, is on display in his creation of all things. We, on the other hand, know so little. We see so little. And we understand so little. But the Lord created all things, holds all things together, works all things according to the counsel of his will, sees all things, knows all things, and accomplishes his plan according to his wisdom. Well, why does this matter? And how does this shape our perspective? First, I think it should produce in us a sense of humility. We've only been around for a little while after all. We've only been here for a little while. What we know is next to nothing compared to God's knowledge. His wisdom, his knowledge, his perspective is immeasurable. Our perspective, our knowledge, what we see and know is, is so small. And this should produce in us a sense of humility. We should recognize our limitations. We should recognize how limited we are and how vast he is. It should also give us confidence that the Lord knows what he is doing. We may have tough questions at times, and understandably so. But as tough as some of these questions are for us, they are not difficult for the Lord. The Lord is working his plan, his good plan, according to his wisdom. We may not understand. We may have questions. 
and serious doubts. Why did God do this? These questions may seem vexing, but again, they are not vexing to the Lord. Lastly, I'll say that it should lead us to worship. The Lord has revealed himself and his wisdom in creation and in scripture so that we will know him, love him, and worship him. We as the creatures are created to worship our creator. And he is the one, the one who is worthy of all worship. Sadly, we are prone to worship all kinds of things that are not worthy of worship. But God alone, who is eternal and wise, is worthy of our worship. And we are called to be those who worship him in spirit and in truth, knowing that he and his wisdom are eternal. So the first thing we see is that God and his wisdom are eternal. The next thing we need to see in Proverbs to shape our perspective on eternity and our lives is that the wicked will perish. I think sometimes our perspective on our lives and the world around us becomes jaded when we see people succeeding and prospering who have no regard for the Lord or others. Why did the person who lies and takes credit for others' work get the promotion? Why does the person who abuses his authority never face consequences? Why do the power-hungry politicians who care about themselves and not the people they serve keep winning elections? Why does the selfish, greedy person continue to get wealthier? Why does the dictator who destroys lives and threatens peace remain in power? You get the idea. We can think of many examples where sinful and harmful behavior goes unpunished and is sometimes even rewarded. We may be tempted to be discouraged by what is unfair. We may be tempted to envy the success and wealth of others. And we may be tempted to question God because of the injustice we observe. When we are tempted in this way, Proverbs provides the antidote by helping us to interpret events based on eternal realities, not temporary conditions. In chapter 24, verses 19 through 20, we read, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Do not fret because of evil doers. When you hear about evil doers in the news, do not fret. When you see evil doers on social media, do not fret. When you see them at work, do not fret. Do not fret, meaning do not be anxious, do not be agitated, and do not become over, do not be overcome with anger. Also, do not be envious of the wicked. Do not be envious of their success. Do not be envious of their wealth. Do not be envious of their power and influence. Do not 
be envious of the wicked. Why should we not fret because of evildoers? Why should we not be envious of the wicked? Because they have no future. Their lamp will be put out. In Proverbs 10.28, we read, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Whatever the wicked expect to gain, whatever they expect to accomplish, whatever they expect to enjoy, will perish. And that will happen very soon. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Our lives are short. Our lives are but a mere breath. Regardless of how old you are, you really don't have much time left. And that is bad news for the wicked because they have no future, meaning they have nothing good to look forward to in their future. The fact that the wicked will perish points to the futility of any wealth they accumulate. Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteous, righteousness delivers from death. And 11.7 says, When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. What good is it to become rich in this life when you have no good future beyond this life? Worldly wealth earned and accumulated will soon be gone. Jesus made this point when he told a parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Listen to what he said. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The wicked who are not rich toward God will not enjoy their wealth for very long. Indeed, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to gain everything this world has to offer, only to enjoy it for a mere breath and then spend eternity in hell? 10,000 years from now, which is nothing, the person who gained the whole world won't really care that they gained the whole world. That helps our perspective, doesn't it? What good is it? What does it profit a man to gain everything the world has to offer and yet forfeit his soul? Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Jesus strongly condemned sin and wickedness. He warned repeatedly about the coming judgment. He spoke clearly about the reality of hell. He did not shrink back from these difficult subjects. He spoke the truth. Brothers and sisters, we do not say and believe these things with any sort of pride condescension or smugness but rather with sober-mindedness these things should give us a sober-minded perspective toward those who are not walking with the Lord we do not fret evildoers or envy the wicked but feel the weight of what awaits them. The reality of death and eternal judgment helps our perspective on the wicked. We are not to fret over the wicked because in the end their plans and schemes will fail. We are not to envy them because anything they have will not last but will perish. The next thing we see is the righteous will live. God and his wisdom are eternal. The wicked will perish, and the righteous will live. From the beginning of the book, we have seen that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord seek his wisdom and pursue his righteousness. Wisdom is inextricably linked to living a righteous life. Throughout Proverbs, there is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. While we see that the wicked will perish, we also see that the righteous will live. In Proverbs 12, 28, we read, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And in 24, verses 13 and 14, we read, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. The Lord, who is eternal, promises a future with him for all eternity to those who know his wisdom and walk in his righteousness. The righteous do not need to fear death. The righteous do not need to be anxious about the shortness of this life. The righteous do not need to wonder if their hope for the future will lead to disappointment. The righteous will enjoy eternal life. When we embrace this truth, and when we have this perspective, it changes 
how we view this life. Take suffering, for example. When the righteous know the future that awaits them, they can endure suffering with joy. In the Lord's timing, we had a memorial here yesterday, a celebration of life for our dear sister, Susan Alps, who passed away in July after four years with cancer. What stood out to so many was Susan's perspective on her cancer. She said many times to many people, this cancer has been a gift. This cancer has led her to draw closer to the Lord. She viewed her cancer as a means by which she experienced God's presence in a more profound way. And she said this with conviction. She meant it. When you talked with Susan, you could see that her faith was strong. Her joy was sincere. And her gratitude to the Lord was profound. She knew that regardless of the outcome of her cancer, she would be with the Lord. And she eagerly awaited that day. And during the final week of her life, when she knew she was at the end, her faith remained strong. And she said the same things. The Lord has used this cancer to draw me closer to himself. Her perspective on suffering, four years with cancer, was shaped by the truth that the righteous will live. She knew she had a future beyond cancer. She knew she had a future beyond this life. And that hope sustained her and was a means by which she was able to encourage and strengthen others. The righteous will live. The obvious question is, how do we become righteous? Especially since Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You are not the exception. Not even one. Well, that seems like a problem for all of us in light of the fact that the wicked will perish and the righteous will live. The Bible says that no one is righteous. Well, Proverbs points to the solution to this problem. In chapter 16, verse 6, we read, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs here points to the glorious truth of the gospel. The truth is, no one is righteous in their own person, in their own works, in their own lives. None of us are righteous on our own. 
Rather, every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. Every single one of us has become unrighteous. And we are in need of being righteous in order to enjoy right relationship with the Lord. But we cannot make ourselves righteous. But God, according to his steadfast love and according to his faithfulness, has provided a way for our sins, our iniquity, to be atoned for. And he did so by providing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save unrighteous sinners like us, to make atonement for our sins. And he did so through his sacrificial death at the cross. Do you want to know what happened at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us what took place, explains to us the implications of Christ's death. Here's what it says. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus made atonement for our sins so that those who are united to Christ by faith receive the forgiveness of our sins and are declared righteous. This is the gospel, the glorious good news. God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul so energetically and enthusiastically you know, and passionately preached the gospel as much as he could to as many people as possible. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. No matter how hard you try, to live a good life, you cannot become righteous in the eyes of the Lord through your own works. But God in his mercy, in his steadfast love, has provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sins and made righteous in his sight. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know more than anything the good news of the gospel, that everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Christ will be saved and will be made righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We are not righteous because of our own works and deeds, but we are made righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us or imputed to us by faith. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you have been made righteous. And because you have been made righteous, you have a glorious future. Whatever happens to you in this life, you have a glorious future. Whatever trials you experience, whatever hardship, whatever sorrows, whatever suffering, whatever you experience in this life, you have a glorious future. You will live forever with the Lord in his kingdom. He has blessed us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places with 
every spiritual blessing. He has promised us an inheritance that is immeasurably better than anything this world has to offer. He will give us glorious bodies to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no sin, no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, and no death. God and his wisdom are eternal. The wicked will perish. The righteous will live. And lastly, live accordingly. Proverbs is concerned with how we live. Wisdom is not merely intellectual knowledge, but is demonstrated through living a righteous life. So, Proverbs shapes our perspective and worldview so that we align our lives with the truth of God's word. We are to live our lives in such a way that reflects the truth that God and his wisdom are eternal, that the wicked will perish and the righteous will live. First, that means we fear the Lord. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Walk in the fear of the Lord. As those who have been made righteous, we are called to walk in the righteousness of God. And when you fear the Lord, you honor him, you revere him, you humble yourself before him. You submit yourself to him. You take his commands seriously. Fearing, of the, fearing the Lord means you seek to honor him and obey his commands and bring glory to his name in all things. Another important way we apply these truths is how we relate to others. Our understanding of life, death, and eternity should lead us to act in specific ways toward others. And Proverbs impresses this on us. Specifically in chapter 24, verses 11 through 12, we read, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We know about the judgment that is coming. We know about the reality of life and death and that our lives are short. We know about heaven and hell. We know that a person's only hope for a glorious future is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that a person must believe the gospel to be saved. We know that they must hear the gospel if they will believe the gospel. We know that they will only hear the gospel if someone speaks the gospel. Therefore, we cannot be passive and we cannot claim ignorance. We are to actively seek to rescue those in danger. In chapter 11, verse 30, we read, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. We must seek to capture souls with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We, as God's people, must prayerfully seek the salvation 
of those who are being taken away to death, of those who are facing, facing an eternity in hell separated from God. The Apostle Paul applied this thinking to his ministry. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he talked about his desire and his efforts and his strategy to try to win people to Christ. He talked about how he was willing to humble himself and adapt to different people, to try to become like them in the sense of not putting any kind of stumbling blocks in their way, not putting any stumbling blocks that would hinder them from hearing and believing the gospel. He was willing to work hard. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to adapt. He was willing to try to become like others so that they would hear the gospel he preached, so that they would believe and be saved. He said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Because he had a biblical worldview, because he had an eternal perspective, he sought to save souls. He understood that God is the one who saves souls, okay? He understood that as well as anybody. But he also understood that he was an instrument in the hands of the Lord. He was an instrument in the hands of the Lord in the work of saving souls. Christians who speak the gospel are the means by which God saves Sinners. The Lord wants to use us to rescue those being taken away to death. He wants to use us to capture souls. He wants to use us to save some. That begins with those whom the Lord has sovereignly placed in our lives who do not yet know the Lord. Every single one of us has people in our lives who have not yet believed the gospel. And most of them have probably never clearly heard the gospel. I want to encourage you to never assume that a non-Christian understands the gospel. And if you don't believe me, try asking people to explain the gospel. Try asking a non-Christian to explain the gospel. Rarely will you find a time that a non-Christian truly understands the gospel. I think we tend to assume that people have heard it and rejected it. But if you simply ask someone, what do Christians mean when they talk about the gospel? How would you answer that? Very few people can answer that. Sadly, very few Christians can answer that well. Do not assume that people in your life who are not Christians have heard and just chosen not to believe. Most of them have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are most likely their best chance to hear it. So, brothers and sisters, we must think about this. We must pray about this. We must joyfully and enthusiastically look for opportunities to share the gospel with those right in our lives. And also, together, we want to be a people who seek to proclaim and advance the gospel throughout our community and around the world. This means partnering with other churches here in our county, 
for the sake of proclaiming the Gospels and planting churches. For some of us, it means going to other parts of the world to proclaim the Gospel where very few people have had a chance to hear. We ought to be people who seek to share Christ with those in our lives, partner with other churches to spread the Gospel, who pray for unreached people groups around the world who don't even have access to the Gospel. There are people who are born live a long life and die without ever hearing the name Jesus. This is something we should care about. This is something we should pray about. This is something that we should look to partner with other Christians for. In our bookstore, we have books about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They were missionaries to Ecuador. They had a passion and a zeal to reach tribes there with the gospel who had no access to the gospel. They wanted to give their lives to this work, even though it was dangerous. They knew it was dangerous work. They knew it could cost them their lives. Jim Elliott and his friends wanted to reach a particular tribe in Ecuador that was notoriously violent, but they were willing to risk their lives to go into the jungle to try to share Christ with these people so that they would believe and be saved, knowing that without the gospel, they would spend eternity in hell. They knew they were a dangerous people. They knew they were violent people, but they did not even want to bring a gun to defend themselves. And here was their line of thinking. If we die, we'll go to heaven, we'll be with the Lord. If we kill them and they die, they will spend eternity in hell. And they ended up, they, they ended up, they were killed. It did cost them their lives. Jim Elliot and his friends died seeking to share the gospel with those who had not heard. He was prepared to do so. You see, before he died, Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was willing to give his life because he knew he couldn't keep his life here on this earth in its present form. He couldn't keep that. We're all going to lose it. So he was willing to give that up to gain something that he could not lose, eternal life with Christ. He wasn't saying that you have to die in order to be saved, but he was saying if there's anything that's hindering you, there's anything that's hindering you from coming to Christ, be willing to give it up. Be willing to give up anything that is hindering you from coming to faith in Christ. Because when you come to faith in Christ, you will gain something that you cannot lose. and No one can take it from you. Brothers and sisters, I hope we have this enthusiasm, this zeal, this commitment to sharing Christ, the gospel, with those who have not heard who have not believed. I hope that will be true of us as a church. I hope that will characterize our church family. Brothers and sisters, may God grant it to us to live in such a way that reflects the truth that God and his wisdom are eternal. The wicked will perish, and those who have been made righteous in Christ will live forever with him in his glorious kingdom. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom revealed to us in creation and your word. We thank you for the wisdom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have revealed the gospel to us. that We might believe and be saved. We pray that you will help us to live in light of these truths. We pray that our, our, our perspective, our worldview will be shaped by your word. And we pray that you would help us to align our lives with the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an enthusiasm in the work of evangelism to bring the gospel to those who have yet to believe. And we thank you for this, Lord. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in our future with you. You are good to us. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.